people before you sit down. Uh, how about we just all stand and tell the person standing or sitting next to us, I'm glad that you were created. I'm glad that you were created. Everybody, come on, let's stand. Let's say that to a few people. I'm glad you were created. I'm glad that you were created. Let's go for it. I'm glad that you were created. Mike? Brooks? Glad you were created. So glad. I'm glad that you were created. We even got hugs going over here. That's awesome. So glad that you were created, Leanne. Glad that you were created. Well, this morning we're going to continue this study of doctrine that we started a couple of weeks ago. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of creation. If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to go through all 66 books this morning. Just kidding, we won't go through all 66, but we are going to start at the beginning and we are going to end at the end. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Before I dive in, just want to say a couple of words about this doctrine. Uh, this doctrine is much more expansive than just the way in which the earth was created. So when we think about this doctrine, we think about much bigger than, than just the way in which it was created, although the way it was created is super important. But this doctrine also includes what happens in creation when sin enters the world and God's redemptive work in the midst of creation, which ultimately leads to a new creation at the end of time. So this doctrinal statement much bigger than just the first, not, I shouldn't say just the first, but just these first couple of verses in the scripture. So here's our statement, and then we'll dive into the scripture. We believe God created the world from nothing, that governs all things at all times in all places. We believe God created the world from nothing and governs all things at all times in all places. Let's dive in. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, and then verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first line stands on its own. The second line speaks more about specifically what's happening prior to creation, but the first verse stands on its own. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty, so unordered and uninhabited, Darkness was over the surface of the deep. That's language of like non-reality or uh, language that trying to define something that's indefinable, that this preceded creation. Then it says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The next few verses in this narrative talks about how God formed and how God filled the earth, how God brings order and how God brings inhabitants to his creation. And then it ends this way, Genesis chapter two, verses two and three. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Creation comes into being by the very word, by the very breath of God. And at, these, at the end of these days of forming and filling, God blesses all of creation. 
So let's just go back to the first line. The first line is, is huge. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's huge. But what might even be more huge or huger, I don't know if huger is a theological word, but what might even be more huger is this first phrase, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I just want you to take a look at those first four words. Paul Tripp says these are the most important four words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. The first four words of the Bible put God not only as the origin of all things, but at the center of all things. In the beginning, God, because God was before anything, God is the only one who rightly deserves worship. In the beginning, God, because God is the creator of all that exists, God and God alone has the right to define what is good and right and true. In the beginning, God. God is the first and only source of life. That means purpose and identity can only be found in and through God, in his way, in his will. In the beginning, God. If God was, then everything he declares is. That means the universe and everything else must be seen and understood in a certain way. That's God's way. Not your way, not my way. God's way. Paul Tripp, who I mentioned a moment ago, says that the doctrine of creation is the watershed belief. It is the line in the sand and the ultimate game changer. There is no neutrality here. It's either his world or it's yours. It's either his way or it's your way. And depending on which side of the line you find yourself, from the smallest little moments to the biggest decisions, they have profound consequence. We are all going to be tempted. We talk about this with three lies. We're going to be tempted with the lie of autonomy, like, oh, no, 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 I can, this is, I can do this. The lie of relativity, oh, well, that doesn't totally apply to me and my circumstance. And the lie of self-sufficiency. Wherever you find yourself on either side of this fence, if you believe that God is from the beginning, he is the beginning, he's the creator and sustainer of all things, or, I mean, kind of, sort of, maybe, I'm not sure, it's really going to say a lot about what we believe, about what you believe. In the beginning, God. God is a being of unimaginable majesty. He is indescribable in his glory. He is incomparable in his beauty. He is limitless in his power and his might. And he is our never-ending source of light and life and love. He has no beginning and no end. He is our sovereign God who created the world from nothing and governs all things at all times, in all places. He is the only one who is worthy of our worship. I, uh, I've got to share a few Psalms in every sermon. So a couple Psalms I want to share with you. Psalm 24, verse 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 148. Check these verses out. Psalm 24, 
24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let's just stop for a second. You guys getting this? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it is his. Real quick, are you guys with me? Is it ours or is it his? It's his, it's his. Psalm 19 verses one through six, this is my beloved's favorite Psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands and day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. His creation, his very creation, declares his goodness and his grace. All of the earth declares his glory. Psalm 148, verses one through six. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the highest heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord for at his command they were created and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Never. There's this one more, uh, one more I want to add uh, from Luke's gospel. It's this story of where Jesus is coming in, uh, what we call Palm Sunday. He's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and all of these people are praising. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, check out what happens. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they've seen. Blessed is he, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, these very stones on the road will cry out. Jesus says, if we, his people, refuse to give him praise, the very stones on the road on due west will cry out and praise him. Some of you have been at sanctuary for a really, really long time. And some of you that have been here for a long time may remember that we used to have this big pile of rocks that were right over here. This big pile of rocks. Did some of you guys remember that? Remember, remember that, Sheila? So big pile of rocks. And every once in a while, new people would come in and they'd be like, what's the deal with the rocks? And we would say, this is the deal. If we're not gonna praise, these rocks right here will praise him in our place. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, why did he create? Creation is simply an overflow of his love. He could not create. Why did he create? It was just an overflow of his love. Ours is a God of love. Our God creates overflows from the love that was happening between the Trinity, between God the Father, between God the Son, and God the Spirit. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says that ours is a God of love. Creation 
itself is an act of love. God is the giver of all life and all love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. If you have your Bibles and you're still back there in Genesis, Genesis chapter three, verse eight, talks a little bit about what happened after the fall, but it also paints a picture of what happened before the fall. I just want to give you this picture real quick. Genesis three, verse eight, then the man and his wife, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was God's practice, best we can understand, it was God's practice to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. To walk in the garden, and who would he walk in the garden with other than Adam and Eve? To walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And they just would be together enjoying each other's company, enjoying each other's presence. Some of you were in our women's Bible study on Wednesday night. And the question was asked there in that study, what do you think they talked about? What would God talk about with Adam and Eve? Like, there's no anxiety. There's nothing to worry about. There are no financial problems. There's no will that you have to discern. What would you talk about with God if there was nothing to talk about? There were no problems. They would just be enjoying each other's company. And I have no idea what they talked about, but I bet it was incredible what they talked about. What would it be like if you just hung out with God? What would it be like if you just sat in his presence? And yes, if you want to, tell him all about the things that make you anxious or the things that worry you, the things, financial problems, work problems, trying to discern what's best. Yes, do all of that. I think that's really, really important. I know it's important for me. But at the same time, how cool would it be just to sit with God in his presence and just to enjoy his company and to believe that God just wants to enjoy your company. He doesn't want to necessarily tell you you have to do all of these things and you got to do them really fast and you got to do them really well. What if you just sat with God believing that he just enjoys being with you? Well, That's all life before the fall, and then, you know, the fall happens. These are the couple verses prior to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This is verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And in that moment, everything fell. Everything fell. But this isn't a story about everything falling. This is a story about God. This is a story about God's creation. This is not a story about sin prevailing. This is a story about the love of God. I love what J.D. Walt says. He says, our love story begins with original glory, not original sin. It begins with the original glory of Eden, not from the fall of grace. Before there was ever a sinner, there was already a savior. Salvation recognizes that you are created in the image of almighty God and darkness corrupted and sin distorted this image beyond recognition. But because of God's great love for us, Jesus made a way for grace to restore us utterly and completely. 
in the first hour, someone actually said, amen, when I got to that part. I won't read it all again, but I mean, come on, you guys. Amen. God will not allow sin to have the last word. This is a bit more of the story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I love this. There's two trees in the garden, the tree of good and evil and the tree of life. And if these guys would have eaten from the tree of knowledge and consumed and then eaten from the tree of life, they would have been destined for death. It would have been death and that's all there would have been was death for eternity. But God in his great love takes these guys out of the Garden of Eden to protect them from themselves. He banishes them from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which it had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God loves us so much that he protects the garden of Eden. He protects Adam and Eve from themselves. What happens at the fall cannot be understated. The best way that I can describe it is if in Genesis chapter 1, the world was beautiful and it was good and it was peaceful, in one moment, it was all broken. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with one another, broken relationships with the world. And it's here in this moment where we are introduced to fear. Anyone here know anything about fear? This is where it starts, right here in the garden. It's here where we are introduced to shame. Anyone here know anything about shame? Yeah. The devastating effect of sin is so powerful that when God's perfect world fell, it all fell. Not just humanity. It all fell. All of creation fell. Now, please hear me. It doesn't mean that God's not sovereign. God is sovereign over all things at all times in all places. But it does mean that sin has natural consequences and it has cosmic consequences. Paul writes these words, Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope, For what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Our reality today is that creation continues to praise and creation continues to groan, awaiting the renewal of God for all things. Uh, Let me see if I can illustrate this for you guys. Best best way I can illustrate this is is this? I, I I got to spend a couple of week a, a, a couple of days this week in Southern California, and there is a beauty in Southern California, y'all. 
I mean, it is amazing. Got to go down to the beach uh, one day and, and hang out there. And I know some of you don't love California, but I love it and there's nothing like it. I was like, man, God's creation. And I just was praising God for his creation. It's just amazing. Well, when I got home, uh, we drove up to uh, Birmingham because our uh, daughter and our son-in-law were jumping on a cruise to go to Greece. To go to Greece. Could you imagine how beautiful? I saw the pictures, some of the pictures that they've, Greece must be absolutely amazing if the pictures that we see evoke some reaction. Can you imagine seeing it for yourself? Some of you may have seen Greece. I don't know. Then our younger daughter, we put her on a plane yesterday, and today she's exploring Glacier National Park. Anyone here ever been to Glacier National Park? Incredible. Is it not incredible? When we went to Glacier a couple years ago, I looked at Christy Bowler and I was like, if after coming here, people can't believe in God, I just, I don't know what else you need than this, than this is crazy. And I would imagine that some of you guys saw our granddaughter running around here just a little bit ago. Have I told you guys about our granddaughter? Our kids allowed us to have our granddaughter for eight days. The beauty of creation is running around our house. There's nothing better than that. It's incredible. It's incredible. And then last night I got the chance to talk to my buddy, Brian Saunders. Some of you know Brian. He works for the Salvation Army and he called me from Maui. Brian's on Maui to do what the Salvation Army calls emergency disaster services. And he went for a couple of reasons. He went to care for the little Salvation Army church and the people there after their church had burned down. And last Sunday, he gathered a group of people from that little church, the church that had burned down and most of their houses had burned down. And they just kind of stood over on the side near the beach. And he gave this little talk. I said, what did you say? What did you say? And he said, I just wept. What do you say in response to a natural disaster? What do you say in response to a flood? In Florida or Louisiana, what do you say to a friend who has lost a loved one? Is there anything to say? Or does your presence say it all? Do your tears say it all? He said, man, I just wept. I just wept last Sunday. And as I was hanging up, I was reminded of 13 years ago when Brian and uh, his family were stationed on Oahu with the Salvation Army and Brian's wife died. And my buddy Ivan and I, you guys remember Ivan from a couple weeks ago, my buddy Ivan and I jumped on the plane to go out there, and about halfway over, I was, I was hitting Ivan, and I was like, Ivan, what do we say? What do we say? What do we say to Brian? And Ivan said, we don't say anything. We just weep. We just weep. What do you say to sickness? What do you say to addiction or abuse? What do you say? I don't know if there's anything better than just your presence. And, and lots of times your tears. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? In the midst of all of our disasters, Jesus came. He became present. And it's by his wounds then that we are healed 
fires and floods and wars and persecution and oppression and abuse and addiction, all because of the fall. And like you and me, creation is waiting to be fully redeemed. Sin doesn't have the last word. The fall will not permanently be our definer. Because our love story is a story of God, it's a story of God coming to us. I want to tell you, I'm going to try to tell it to you quickly. I want to tell you another seven-day story. It's a story of a recreation, all from Luke's gospel. It sits on the foundation of Jesus. We read this text a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. The mission of Jesus is to save us from our sins. Yes? Yes? Yes. The mission of Jesus is to save us for, from our sins. Yes. And that mission includes turning humanity back to the Father in every aspect of sinful life. Jesus didn't just come to fulfill some transaction like, okay, there's the sinners and the holy God and now I'm going to move in here and do this thing and so everything's going to be just fine. Jesus didn't just come to change our minds about the bad ideas that we have. Some of us have very bad ideas. Jesus came to grab hold of us from within and to heal us and to orient us and to recreate us in a right relationship with the Father. Day one of this seven-day story, Jesus is born. Luke chapter one, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. At the beginning of this great love story, we just read it a moment ago, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep. It's like a mother hen who's hovering over her nest. And in this recreation, the Spirit is at work. Day two, Jesus grew. Luke chapter two, verse 40 and verse 52, and the child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In this day two of this recreation story, Jesus is learning obedience. If, there, if obedience wasn't a thing, then Jesus could have just died as a baby. If it was there something about, well, it just needs to be Jesus, then Jesus could have died then and the sacrifice would have. But it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more than that. Jesus is learning what it means to be fully human. Jesus is bending human nature back toward the Father again. In day three of this recreation story, Jesus is baptized. Luke chapter three, verses 21 through 22 says this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. As in the original creation story, our recreation story comes with blessing. The blessing that was present at Jesus' baptism is now transferred to all of those who follow Jesus. All of those who are in Christ. In Christ, you too are the beloved. You are the beloved son or daughter of Jesus. You too, with you too, he is well pleased because of Jesus. In Christ, you and I are the beloved. You and I become the righteousness of the Father. You guys with me? You become the righteousness of the Father. Day four, tempted. Jesus was tempted. Luke chapter four, verses one through 13, just a couple of verses from that passage. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. It's a bit of parallel between the temptation of Jesus and Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree. Jesus refuses to give in to the temptation to eat. That temptation that's in the garden that still reverberates today, the lie of autonomy, the temptation of relativity, the temptation of self-sufficiency, Jesus says, no, I won't disown my baptism. No, I won't disown my identity. Jesus refuses. Jesus refuses to the point of crucifixion. And that's day five of this recreation story. Jesus was crucified. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 47. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely, This was a righteous man. The cross was Jesus' final act in a life of loving obedience to the Father. At the cross, Jesus surrendered to the most horrifying of human experiences in order to transform the most horrifying of human experiences. Jesus' obedience, it doesn't like... It doesn't make him fit for service. Well, now that you know he's obedient, he's the one who fits for the sacrifice. It was only through his obedience that our disobedience could be healed. His life of obedience recreated us step by step. Day six, he's resurrected. Luke chapter 24, verses four through eight. While they were wondering about all this, Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you that while he was still with you in Galilee? He said, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember, that's what he said. The resurrection 
is God's greatest act of creativity. Let me say it one more time. The resurrection is God's greatest act of creativity. With the resurrection itself, a shockwave has gone through the entire cosmos. The new creation has been born, and now it is being implemented in our day and time. Our whole lives, not just our spiritual lives, our whole lives, body, mind, and soul, all aspects of our lives, the good, the bad, the ordinary, the extraordinary, have been redeemed and transfigured as creation is itself. Day seven, Jesus ascended. Luke chapter 24, verses 49 through 53, Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. Matt talked about this last week. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple courts, praising God. Day seven, the ascension is the reverse of the incarnation. In the incarnation, God comes down and does life on our turf. He comes down and hangs out with us in our neighborhood. In the ascension, Jesus is now with the Father, interceding on our behalf. In the ascension, he is there now in the throne room of God, and his blessing is upon all creation even now, for eternity. In Christ, all things don't go back to normal. In Christ, all things are made new. Paul writes these words to the church at Ephesus, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under, in heaven and in earth under Christ. And that, I believe, is what's happening now. One day all things will be in communion with everything else. Humanity with humanity, uh, humanity with God, humanity with creation, all in communion, garden-like one day, and it's happening now. Paul says in his triumphant conclusion of 1 Corinthians, God will be all and in all. God will be all and in all. All right, so a couple questions and then I'll be done. It's one thing to talk about theology and kind of get our heads wrapped around this stuff. But the question is, what do we do with it? So a couple questions before I close. What is God recreating in our life today? What's he doing? Or maybe the better question is, what do you desire for him to recreate in your life today. How might you invite another to wait with you as the Spirit continues his recreating work in you and through you? And then one day, one day, he will make all things new. John the Revelator 
wrote these words, John 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Let's pray. God, we give you praise for being in the beginning and in the middle and in the eternal realm that has no end. We give you praise. Jesus, we give you praise for not allowing sin to have the last word, for overcoming sin and death, for being our atoning sacrifice, our Lord and our God. And Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to live this day on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.